0: uh i'm kind of enjoying this whole series we're in king of the hill it's been fun and uh this weekend is kind of the whole idea of what what has been called the beatitudes and jesus is saying blessed is the and he has all this list yeah and that word blessed means happy Hmm. and as i think about happy and what it takes to make people happy i think of for you pastor rob what would be some things that make you happy
1: well, you know, I, 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 obviously, following Jesus is is just a great reward in life. It's a mission to give your life to. And I love, quite honestly, to be with my family. It almost doesn't matter what we're doing, just being together with my wife and, and my two kids. And, and then I love, this time of year, I love to ride my motorcycle. That yeah. brings me a lot of happiness. It's therapeutic for me. How, how about you? What makes you happy?
0: I would say, uh, yeah, you have to start with the God factor. I mean, yeah. being in the will of God, knowing you're doing that mission is a deep fulfillment. But I think beyond that, I love grilling out.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, This time of year, it's so fun. I like playing golf once in a while. And uh, being with family, uh, kicking back. I think just relaxing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and anything around water, hmm. I really do love.
1: Well, what do you suppose makes Pastor Jeff happy? Pastor Jeff? um
0: What would make him happy?
1: Is he snake hunting? Well, poor Pastor Jeff is not snake hunting today. I'm sorry you're looking at me. Um, his swine flu uh, morphed into pneumonia. And so he is recovering, thankfully. But the doc gave him strict instructions to stay in bed uh, and let this get out of his system before he does anything. So keep praying for him. I was going to even try to like spike my hair or something just to try to try to give you the feel. What do you think of, if you were asked... To finish the sentence, happiness is, how would you finish that sentence? What is it in your mind when you think of happiness? What, what is it that, that shapes happiness? That's a challenging word in our culture. It's been kind of diluted, hasn't it? Because it's so, it's so subjective. I mean, there's so many different opinions about happiness. There's one who might say happiness is an opera well-performed. And then there's the guy who goes, well, happiness is a cold beer in NASCAR. You know? <laughs> that was the- it's just subjective neither one of those sound all that happy to me and so what is happiness I mean we ought to think we ought to think that through because even our declaration of independence as a nation says part of our declaration uh, of independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among those rights are life, liberty and the pursuit of Happiness. So our founding fathers say that the pursuit of happiness is a right given us by God. Is it? Is that a right God says we have to pursue happiness? How does God define happiness? What does God say happiness is? This is just an interesting word. Here are some others who who have offered thoughts on what happiness is. Aristotle says that happiness is the meaning and purpose of life. The whole aim and end of human existence. Really? That the whole aim and end of human existence is to be happy? Well, we certainly live in a culture where people live like that, don't we? Who will do anything and everything, whatever it takes, as long as I'm happy. He also says, Aristotle, happiness belongs to the self-sufficient. Now, is that what God thinks of when he thinks of happiness? Here's one I like. Spike Milligan says, money can't buy you happiness, but it does bring you a more pleasant form of misery. (laughs) I guess I kind of agree with that one. Mark Twain says, happiness ain't a thing in itself. It's only a contrast with something that ain't pleasant. So that's happiness in his mind. Woody Allen, the great philosopher, says, (laughs) says, life can be divided into the horrible and the miserable. Thank you, Woody Allen. Henny Youngman says, what's the use of happiness? It can't buy you money. (laughs) This is a good one. Socrates. Socrates says, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) And then the late George Burns says that happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> That's what, he says. That's what is this idea of happiness? We need to talk about it because Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, the best-known teaching of Jesus in all of Scripture. He begins the Sermon on the Mount by talking about happiness. Now, as you know, we're in this series called King of the Hill, And we're taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And last week, last weekend, we kind of set the stage for this series. We talked about the fact that Jesus, the rabbi, sat down taking the position of authority that rabbis would take and opened his mouth and began to teach authoritatively. And the subject of his teaching was the kingdom of heaven. He had traveled throughout all of Galilee proclaiming a simple message, repent, repent, Change, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Heaven, the dwelling place of God, had drawn near to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Heaven was exploding on the earth in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus begins to speak from the sitting position of a rabbi. And the first nine statements of his talk, he begins with nine statements that start with the word blessed. Now we know these as the Beatitudes and normally we see them as eight Beatitudes because two of those statements deal with the same thing, which is persecution. Beatitudes, we call them Beatitudes because that word Beatitude comes from the Latin word uh, that means blessing or blessed. And so we call them Beatitudes. But the Greek word that's used here for blessed the way he starts nine of these first statements in this sermon, the Greek word is a word that is uh, that, that means something pretty radical and extreme when it comes to happiness. The Greek word is makarios. And that word means happy, fortunate, blissful, or supremely blessed. In fact, it was the Greek name that was given to the island of Cyprus. And the reason it was given to the island of Cyprus is because Cyprus was a place because of its location, its climate, its soil, its minerals. It was believed to be a place that lacked nothing. It had it all. And so the idea behind this Greek word is one of having it all. In fact, this will give us a picture. It's the Greek word that was used to describe the state in Greek culture of Greek gods who were were in such a state of bliss because they weren't subjected to the things human beings were subjected to like pain and suffering. The word to describe their state in Greek was this word makarios. This word blessed. It's an extreme word that Jesus uses for happiness. And he uses it 9 times in the opening statement of this sermon. And what makes it so radical and so interesting are the words that he associates with this extreme word for happiness. Okay? Because it, it didn't really make sense in the culture in which Jesus spoke those words. In that day, they would have never associated the words Jesus uses with the idea of this extreme word, bless. Let's look at what he says. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's how Jesus begins the sermon. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, those those phrases don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if you go out and, and do some Christmas shopping this year and you look to find you remember those little figurines that would say happiness is and it would be followed by a word or a statement. You're probably not going to find any figurines that you can buy for grandma that say happiness is poverty. Happiness is deep sorrow. You're probably not going to find a little figure that's like opening a fortune cookie that says something like hope you've made out your will. that <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. We ought to come up with a line of fortune cookies that say really horrible things That's twisted, isn't it? I'm sorry. What what's what could Jesus be saying here? See, because it didn't make sense to the people who were hearing these words, the kingdom That these people envisioned that would right the wrongs that they were experiencing under the oppression of Rome, these occupying forces, was not a kingdom that was entered into by the poor or those who mourned, certainly not by the meek or the peacemakers. So, what is Jesus talking about? This is the introduction. This sets the tone for his sermon. What does he mean? Well, there are a variety of opinions. Among scholars as to the best way to understand and apply the Beatitudes. i want to talk about two of, of the dominant ideas surrounding the Beatitudes. The most common thought is that the Beatitudes are virtues or attitudes that followers of Jesus ought to pursue with their lives. And there's a natural flow of the way that Jesus stated them. All right. Now, we don't have time to unpack and dig into each and every one of them this morning. But let me give you an idea of the thought behind this. All right. Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor that Jesus use, uses is the most extreme word in, in Greek that Jesus could have used to describe poverty. Okay, There are other words that describe, po- describe poor. This is the most extreme. This is talking about bankrupt or empty. It's a begging kind of poor. In fact... The word actually speaks of cringing or cowering like a beggar. It is total destitution that's being talked about here. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are like this. So the idea behind it is that what Jesus is talking about is, is that all of us have to come to a place where we recognize our spiritual poverty. That we bring nothing to the table when it comes to entering into the kingdom of God, being accepted by God. It has nothing to do with what we've done. It's all what he's done. There's nothing in us that merits the love and the mercy and the favor that God has shown us. It's just his grace. right? That's the idea there. When I recognize that I am spiritually bankrupt, that I am destitute, I'm fully dependent upon God. Now... With that in mind, it always amazes me to to see certain ones who are become kind of Christian celebrities, which is kind of an oxymoron anyway, when you think about it. But those who kind of have the idea that God's just pretty lucky to have gotten them on the team. Bless God's heart. He gets me to be part of his thing. Friends, we just need to understand, whether the intent of this beatitude is to tell us this or not, it certainly is true that you and I bring nothing to the table when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. We do not enter the kingdom of God on our own power or by our own merit. We don't even enter the kingdom of God hobbling on a crutch. We enter the kingdom of God on a stretcher, fully dependent, and that stretcher is God's grace, and the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive our sins. And we put our faith in the truth of that. All right, so That's important for us to recognize. Well, then it follows in the next statement. As we recognize our poverty of spirit, then, then what follows would be mourning. And he's not talking about mourning in this line of thinking over just pain in life or circumstances of life. It's a mourning over our sin. As we recognize how spiritually bankrupt we are and how great God is, His grace and His love extended to us, it causes us to mourn over our own sin. It is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Scripture talks about that. A godly sorrow that leads us to turn, to change. As we mourn over our sin, then we are comforted. As as we discover the love and the forgiveness that is in Jesus, and it produces in us a passion for holiness, holiness. And we pursue the way God wants us to live because we are overwhelmed by his incredible love and grace that he's shown to us. And so then that would lead to the idea of meekness. Blessed are the meek. Now, meekness is a little bit of a challenging word to define. Paul uses it in referring to the meekness of Christ in one of his letters to the church in Corinth. It's not weakness. It is more along the lines of humility and gentleness and selflessness. And so as we recognize our spiritual poverty and we acknowledge our dependence upon God and his son, Jesus, we see our sinfulness and we mourn with a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. Then we find no room in our lives for arrogance and pride. Only meekness and humility and a gentle, a gentle spirit. Well, then it leads to a hunger and thirst for righteousness and when you look at the word righteousness, this is speaking of more than just a righteousness in relationship with our, in our relationship with God, a personal righteousness. This is speaking, this word largely speaks of equity or justice. And so as we walk through this and we, our lives are being transformed, this is the desire for the rightness of God to prevail where there is oppression and injustice. So the work happening in us, is becoming a work that's happening through us. And as we become selfless, we become more and more concerned with the plight of others, especially the poor and the oppressed. We begin to care about the things God cares about, and God cares greatly about injustice in our world, especially those, the plight of the poor and the oppressed. And so we begin to understand that the kingdom of God is not simply, it's not only this this personal private piety that one day leads me to heaven, but it is also about that the kingdom of God would come and the will of God would be done here and now through my life and through the way that I live. And it produces in us this passion for the rightness of God to be known in the face of oppression and injustice. And so then on and on you can go through this list with flowing into blessed are the merciful for they will be shown merciful and the pure in heart will see God and the peacemakers will be called sons of god and finally those who are persecuted because of righteousness and because of their relationship with jesus now those of you that are journeying in small groups along with this series you're going to be talking this week about this idea of passion and where does passion come from and what does it mean to live passionately in these statements we get a glimpse of passion We see a passion for God and a passion for holiness, a passion for justice and purity and people for faithfulness in the face of persecution. But I want to talk to you for just a few moments about something else we also may be seeing here in in these Beatitudes and what Jesus is doing. Now, think with me about the crowd that's gathered together around Jesus. Last weekend, we talked about the fact that at the end of chapter four, right before this, a large crowd had gathered around Jesus because Everyone who came to Jesus, he healed every sickness and every disease. He, those who were possessed by evil spirits had been set free because they had encountered Jesus. Heaven had drawn near to them in the person of Jesus and their lives were changed forever. And it produced this large crowd of people who just wanted to be near Jesus. Now, Jesus' teaching style, if you read through the Gospels, is a style that Dallas Willard calls show-and-tell. Remember show-and-tell, you go to school with your gerbil, and it's like, his name's Bernie, and you you talk about Bernie, right? Well, Jesus would teach that way often. He would find things in the surrounding area... Things from his immediate surrounding and they would become object lessons on the kingdom or, or things out of ordinary life that people understood in the day in which Jesus lived. We see him often doing that with parables. We see that in receiving communion. It was at a Passover meal. They had gathered together. And there, what was before him was bread and the cup. And Jesus took the bread and the cup, which would have been a part of the meal, very ordinary things that they were doing, but he took that bread and he taught us an incredible lesson. He broke that bread and gave it incredible significance by saying, this is my body, broken for you. This cup is a cup of my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Taking what was immediately surrounding, showing, and then telling. Giving us understanding about the kingdom and the ways of God. So we see that throughout the parables. We see it in a story, a great story in Luke chapter 14. We don't have time to read it and dive into it. But just to tell you the story, Jesus is having a meal with a prominent religious leader of that day. And as they've gathered together at the meal, they're eating. And Jesus, taking the immediate surrounding things, he goes, You know, when you give a lunch or a dinner... He says, don't invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or your rich neighbors. Instead, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And then you will be blessed. Same word, makarios. You will be blessed. What's Jesus saying there? Jesus wasn't saying that it's wrong for you to invite your relatives over for dinner. Some of you got real excited when I read that verse. You're (laughs) tapping your wife saying, I told you your mother shouldn't be coming over so much. That's not what it's saying. All right. Here's what what he's saying. Again, he's taking immediate surroundings and he's trying to teach them something about the kingdom and confronting what was acceptable practice. Jesus is teaching them that the kingdom of heaven is extended to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. You notice that list? The religious leaders of that day would have never invited those people to lunch, much less would they have considered them to be qualified to be a part of a revolutionary kingdom with God as its head. And so Jesus was teaching them about the extension of the kingdom. And he was going right to the heart of where they live because he identifies the reason you invite your friends and relatives and your rich neighbors over is because you hope you get something in return. You invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind. You probably won't get anything in return. And that's what the kingdom looks like. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate there. So he's always bringing it back to the heart. So one day, Jesus is in Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown, it's where he grew up. And while he's in Nazareth, as was his custom, scripture says, he goes into the synagogue, and in the synagogue they hand him the scroll of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's words. Jesus unfolds the scroll, and he finds a place in Isaiah, and he reads those words. The the story of this is recorded in Luke chapter 4. It's not on the screen, but just listen to the words that he reads from the prophet Isaiah spoken hundreds of years before this event. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read those words spoken by the prophet Isaiah and he folded up the scroll and he handed it to the attendant. And it says, Jesus sat down. Once again, assume the position of authority for a rabbi. And it says all the eyes there in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he opened his mouth to teach about what he just read. And here's what he said. He said, today, in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. In other words, the words that were spoken hundreds of years before by the prophet Isaiah is fulfilled. Right now in me. Powerful powerful words that jesus was saying and notice the list here's another list good news to the poor you know what good news is that's the gospel when we say the gospel the word gospel means good news and in that culture it was an announcement the announcement that jesus is making the good news is that the kingdom of heaven the dwelling of god is near in the person of jesus And that good news was preached to the poor, freedom to prisoners, sight to the blind, release for the oppressed. Now, one one more picture for us, and then we'll tie all this together. John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus, the one who proclaimed that Jesus was coming. John the Baptist finds himself in prison. He calls together some of his own disciples because there's doubt in his mind. Jesus is not doing it the way he thought the Messiah would do it. And so there's doubt now. Here's John in prison. John calls together these disciples of his and he sends them to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one sent by God or have I missed it? Should we wait for someone else? And so the disciples go and they find Jesus and Jesus answers them by saying, go tell John what you see in here. And this is what he says. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then he says, blessed, same word, makarios, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. There's another list, a very similar list, the blind, the lame, those who have leprosy, the deaf, even the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And here we are gathered together in this large crowd. Could it be that Jesus is doing a little show and tell? And when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, he may have even pointed out some people. Because there were people in that crowd who were spiritually destitute, bankrupt, far from God. But they had encountered Jesus, and the kingdom of heaven had exploded. In their lives. And everything had changed. Because they had encountered Jesus. They were there. In that crowd. I think one of the stories. of An example of this. That I love the most. Is Matthew. Matthew. Who wrote the the book that we're studying right now. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was far from God. Matthew was hated by the Jews tax collectors would collect taxes for Rome, which they hated in the first place. But then they also would draw their salary from whatever they decided to take from the people as well. And almost all of them were corrupt and they would become wealthy at the expense of their fellow Jews. Fellow Jews hated them and didn't even believe them to be human beings. And yet when you read about the calling of Matthew, if you read it in Mark, Matthew was also known as Levi. Mark says that Jesus saw Levi sitting in the tax collector's booth. Luke says Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi. You know how Matthew records his own calling? He says Jesus saw a man named Matthew. Now it's a subtle little difference, but the Jews of that day would not see Matthew as a man. He was less than human, despicable and despised. He was far from God, but Matthew encountered Jesus and the kingdom of heaven was extended to Matthew and it changed his life forever. Matthew was born spirit, spiritually bankrupt. And there were those there, no doubt, who had mourned. And by the way, Matthew celebrated by having a party and invited all of his other spiritually bankrupt friends over and Jesus went to the party and got in a lot of trouble. There were those who mourned, not just mourning over sin, but those who had lived a life that had been devastated and broken and wounded and hurt from whatever reason. But they, too, had encountered Jesus and found in place of despair, they found a hope because the kingdom of heaven had exploded in the person of Jesus. There were those who were meek. Some humble, some maybe even more than just humble, but maybe timid and afraid. People who would have never been considered to be part of the kingdom of God because everyone, almost everyone in that day, believed one way or another the only way we're going to be right and the only way we're going to overcome the oppression of Rome is through a violent revolt. And so the meek would have never been considered to be part of the kingdom, and yet they had encountered Jesus, and they too had been changed forever, and the kingdom of heaven was extended To them, And on and on we go, those who hungered and thirsted for justice, even those who who pursued a life of trying to live under the pressures of the law and and get everyone else to live under the pressure of the law um, over and over and over again. Those who made peace, who would never be considered part of the kingdom, they were all there and they had all experienced the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus. Here's the point. There is no one, no one who is beyond the reach of God's kingdom. There is no one who is beyond the reach of His grace. These opening words are part of what got Jesus in so much trouble because no one was beyond His love. He loved tax collectors and murderers and prostitutes. He ate with sinners and He touched lepers. He never condoned sin, but He intensely loved people. And no one was beyond the reach of His love. These opening remarks of Jesus... In this sermon, paint a picture for us of the radical inclusivity of the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God was for all who would believe. From Pharisee to tax collector, from God-fearing Jew to prostitute, and we read in the book of Acts, even for the hated Samaritans and Gentiles who were considered dogs by the Jews, it was for all who would believe. No one No one in Jesus' day was anticipating the kind of kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. You know the passion of Jesus. We talk about passion this week in small groups. If you want to know the passion of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that caused him to endure the cross? First, I believe it was to bring glory to the Father. And secondly, it was that this kingdom of heaven... This, this righteous rule, the righteousness of God would be extended to all who would believe. So humanity could be reconciled to the God who loved them and created them. Last weekend after the 1130 service, I spoke with someone from, from church here who shared their story with me. I had not heard their story. They were a biker at one time in every evil sense of the word. They just didn't ride a motorcycle. But drugs and alcohol, sex and violence characterized the whole of their lives. They were spiritually destitute, bankrupt. But they encountered Jesus. They encountered the love of Jesus. And it radically transformed this person's heart. And the kingdom of heaven drew near to him in the person of Jesus. And he's a new person now. And filling this church, are story after story after story that we could tell of people who were far from God, who were addicted to this and that, who cheated, who did all of these things, but they encountered Jesus and found that the kingdom of heaven extended even to where they were. And by believing in him and surrendering to his lordship, their lives have become completely different. They have been changed because they were not beyond the reach of God's grace And God's kingdom. It's what this really is all about. There are people here whose lives have been devastated. Hurt. Broken. Wounded. Abused. Discarded. Rejected. And yet somehow they've encountered Jesus. And they found a whole new value system. They've discovered Jesus valued them enough to give his life for them. And their life has been transformed by the hope that is found in the kingdom. There are some in this church who were intensely religious Who passionately pursued legalism and judgment. And they encountered Jesus too. And the kingdom of heaven drew near and it transformed their heart to a heart that loves and extends the same hope and love that is in the kingdom of God. And on and on and on we can go. Friends, can I just say as we wrap up, that is why we're here. It's why we do this. It's why there are hundreds of people who work behind the scenes just to make a weekend like this happen. That you never see. But they give of their time. They give of their energy. They use their gifts and their talents because this matters. We are announcing that same kingdom that no one in Fort Collins or northern Colorado is beyond the reach of the kingdom of God, of His grace and His love. It's why we give sacrificially right in the middle of a recession because it matters that this announcement is made to all of the world. The kingdom of heaven is for you if you would but believe And put your faith in Jesus. There is no greater cause in all the world for you to give your life to than the cause of the kingdom of heaven drawing near in his son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Before we dismiss, I want to pray if there is someone in this room today. And in this moment of honesty and vulnerability and sensitivity to God's spirit, you would say, the truth is, I have never entered that kingdom. I have never turned to surrender my life fully to Jesus Christ as Lord. But somehow in my life, I believe that the kingdom of heaven is available to me, that it reaches even me. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how messed up your life has been, what kind of baggage you may have kingdom of heaven reaches to you too and if this is your moment of faith where you say I want to trust my life to the king of that kingdom with heads bowed and eyes closed would you just raise your hand and say include me in this prayer because that's what I want to do today go ahead and raise your hand now if that's you thank you, thank you so much thanks for being so honest and vulnerable let's pray together Father you see those who lifted their hands not, not to me not to not to an organization. They lifted their hand to you. The God who knows everything about them and loves them anyway. The God who has declared over and over and over again that His kingdom can reach into the deepest, darkest corners of our lives, the deepest, darkest corners of our society and bring life and hope. And as they raise their hand as a symbolic act of their heart, turning from living for themselves, from being their own king, to surrender to you as king and Lord of their lives, Lord Jesus. Believing that your work on the cross is what enables us to be part of this kingdom. We don't bring anything to the table except our faith. We just trust you. And we believe in the work that you've accomplished to accept us into your kingdom. I thank you for beginning new life in their hearts. And God, I pray that we as a church will never lose sight of the fact that we are not first and foremost an organization. We are not an address or a building, but we are a people. A people who have been transformed by the kingdom of God through Jesus. May we live as kingdom people. May everything we do be about making the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is near and available to all who would believe. Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? I want to invite our prayer team to come at this time, if they will. These are wonderful people in both auditoriums who would love to take your hand and pray for you if you need prayer for any reason today. Otherwise, I love you. Thank you for letting me speak into your life. Go from this place and be the church. Be kingdom people announcing a great, great news for our world. And that is that the kingdom of heaven is near. In Jesus. God bless you as you go. Thanks for coming.